0: Good morning. It's September 25th. So, what happens on December 25th? Yeah, three months. We're a little bit early for the Christmas story, but the themes of Advent that are found in Luke's Gospel—hope uh, and love and peace and joy—all those themes that we study around Christmas season—they're applicable all year long. So. I'm not a sh- afraid to tackle uh, Christmas passages in September. When life's circumstances are difficult, we have, we're, we have a tendency. We're prone to interpret God's silence in answering our prayers as indifference. Uh, in life's disappointments, we often forget that God's watchful eye is always there. We sung about it this morning that his watchful eye is always on his people. He's, he's a, our God is a solid rock. He's a guiding light. He's a caring shepherd. Even people of faith, we can live like deists. Do you know what a deist is? A deist is someone who believes God created the world. He got it going, set nature into motion, its laws and governing, kind of like winding up a clock, or. In modern days, putting a battery in the clock and then stepping away and just letting it go. He's left us a manual and it's up to us to figure it out. He kind of steps his way back. But God's testimony about himself in Scripture says a whole different kind of story. God's revelation tells us that He's here, He's near. He's a matter of fact, He's involved in every nook and cranny on this planet. He knows every transaction and interaction. He knows what you're thinking right now, by the way. I hope that's not scary. (laughs) Wow. He's aware of it all, all through the ages. And that is mind boggling. But God is mindful, especially of you, if you are his child. If you're a follower of Christ, God is mindful of his people, God is mindful Of his promises, and he will never break them. If you're a believer in God this morning, know this truth and then just rest in it for a moment. Your God and Savior is especially concerned about you, He's concerned about your well being. He's concerned about your spiritual soul, that it knows him and walks with him and will live with him in eternity. He will never forget the promises he made to Adam and Eve in the garden about sending a deliverer, even in the curse, while they were being cursed and in and, and, and childbirth and having to work hard, there was this blessing, this promise of a promised seed, a deliverer that was going to come. And His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will never break. Last week, we talked a little bit, took a few moments. You might remember to talk about the 400 years of silence, and that kind of parallels the 400 years of Israel being in bondage in Egypt. And it must have been hard, 400 years being enslaved, and say, God, have you forgotten us? Don't you care? How will we ever become a great nation like you promised when we're enslaved and we're at the mercy of a ruthless ruler, a ruthless pharaoh, and a superpower nation that wants to keep the power? How will we ever become a great nation? Back in Exodus chapter 2, we read these verses just as Moses was being coming onto the scene. He's aware, he cares, he's working for his people's good, and he will never leave or forsake those who look to him in faith. So as we consider these traditional Christmas passages today, on September 25th, remember this. God is always mindful of his people. The Messiah came, God's favor is given, and God is always merciful. Got those three things? God sent Messiah. God's favor is being poured out on his people. God is always merciful. God, mindful of his people, sends Messiah. In in verses 26 and 27, Jim read those passages from Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here we have the announcement of the promised one coming. Finally, the seed that was mentioned in the Garden of Eden when God was cursing the devil, he said, he will crush your head. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. This is being announced. And Luke connects the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus here with the mention of the six months, referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's six months along now. And Gabriel sent He was sent to Jerusalem to the temple six months earlier or so. And now he's sent to a little village in the hills called Nazareth. And his announcement will mention how good and great John the Baptist was going to be. But he mentions how good and greater is the one coming named Jesus. Jesus is the better prophet. Compared to Moses, In Deuteronomy, the Lord your God, Moses said, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you are to listen. In Hebrews chapter 3, we're told that, you know, Moses is revered by the Jewish people for good reason. He's a great deliverer. He was a great prophet of God. He gave the law of God. I mean, he saw God up in the mountain. He, he, he was near to God. There was never another man like Moses. But in the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 3, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, that is Jesus, is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is a servant, but Jesus is the son, the heir, the promised one, a higher position. He's greater, the great and better prophet. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's speaking of Jesus, John chapter 1. Not only is Jesus the better prophet, but he's the better high priest. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, a passage we refer to a lot, a passage we often read around uh, Easter season, talking about what the Messiah would do. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him str- smitten, s- stricken and smitten by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of the Hebrews talks about Jesus being the better high priest. In chapter 7, verse 22, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Speaking of Moses' covenant, or the covenant Jesus established by his death on the cross. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus, or he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the utmost since he always lives to make intercession for his people. So Jesus is a better prophet because he speaks the truth always. He's God himself revealing the truth to us. The word became flesh. He's a better high priest because his sacrifice is once for all done. It wasn't the sacrifice of an animal. The other priests had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins first before they offered the sacrifice for the nation's sins. But Jesus had to make no offering for his own sins. He became the offering that covers all the world's sins. So he's a better prophet and a better priest, and he's going to be a better king. You might have noted when, when Jim was reading the scriptures today But all of the descriptions of Jesus, found in verses 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, making him equal with God the Father. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, the promised line through David the King. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, or the house of Israel forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So all those descriptions of Jesus are true. He's not only a better prophet, priest, but also the best king ever. So here it is, this amazing thing. God comes down to earth and serves us. The Lord of all, creator, the one who always exists, he's the beginning. There's history because God started it all. He had no start. He was always there. That's one of those things we can't comprehend that. He came down so quietly. Think about where Gabriel announced John the Baptist's birth. It's in the temple. It was in Jerusalem. It was done to a high priest, to a priest, not a high priest, but to a priest, to a godly seasoned priest working in the temple. The throne of David had, was promised to be in Jerusalem. It seems like the logical place to make an announcement of not only the forerunner, but Messiah as well, the coming promised one. Jerusalem, John the Baptist got press in Jerusalem, but where does Jesus get press? to a young virgin, probably somewhere between the ages of 12 and 16. Think about that. A young lady, a virgin, an innocent teenage girl, betrothed, engaged to Joseph. To a little town in Nazareth, isolated up in the hills, in the middle of nowhere. So if Philadelphia, picture Philadelphia, the greater Philadelphia area is Jerusalem. Okay. So, where's Nazareth? Think of a crossroads town in the Poconos, tucked away in the hills in a valley. There might be a four way stop there, or maybe a flashing yellow light and a red light, you know. Nobody goes there because there's nothing happening there. There's no reason to go there. You've never heard of the name. That was Nazareth. So the metropolitan people of Jerusalem, who thought they were big stuff, looked down on the people of Nazareth. That's why Nathaniel, when Philip was saying, we found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth, he asked, because it was like this nowhere place. That's where Jesus came, God the Son. He comes so quietly. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does he come so humbly? Digest this truth. God Almighty chooses a life of service to rescue you. He chose that. Though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor, happily became poor because of his mercy and love. Just remember, his humility doesn't mean he's not God. He's awesome and power and might and patience and compassion. But he shows the world the depths of God's mercy and grace and love. So digest that truth for just a moment. The God who created it all comes down humbly to a little town in the middle of nowhere to grow up so that he could serve us and save us. That's amazing. And how should I respond to that truth? How are you going to respond to that truth today? What difference does it make that the God of glory came down to nowheresville, so to speak, to save you, to be a nobody for a while, even though he was the Lord of glory? Well, Peter tells us, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in your understanding. Rejoice in the power and majesty of your God and be amazed that God himself would come to rescue us. So Luke's writing to his friend Theophilus and says, you know, the things you believe about Jesus, be confident in them. And don't be dismayed or doubt that it's true. Think about what you know. Believe. Be a faithful kingdom citizen and live differently because the Lord of glory has come to rescue you. God is ever mindful of his people, so he keeps his promises in amazing and surprising ways. Secondly, God, ever mindful of his people, pours out his favor on them. God's favor. In verses 28 through 45, we see that Mary... Here's this great message, and he came to her, that is Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Hear how many times favor is mentioned here, or grace, that theme of grace. Oh, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary's faith, her belief, shaped her character, and it shaped her attitudes, and it shapes your beliefs and attitudes, too, if you have faith. Placing your belief in Christ, you are given a new life, you're given a new perspective, you're made new creations, you become a new person so that you can live differently so that you can be what God made you to be as you dare to trust and follow him. As Paul wrote in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you're a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. So there's this greeting of grace. Gabriel came to her and said, oh, favored one, <laughs> Some faith traditions, Christian faith traditions, have made Mary something she is not. She was not sinless. Nor did she have to be sinless to bear the Son of God. But we should esteem her highly because she was a great woman, young woman of faith. Greetings, you who who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That's the New International Version. Highly favored, because Mary is is a recipient of God's favor, or another way of saying it, God's grace. I want you to connect something to Ephesians chapter 1. The Greek word here, you are highly favored, is only used twice in the New Testament. Here in Luke... And once in Ephesians chapter 1, listen to these verses in chapters 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase, glorious grace, is the same word as highly favored. So everyone who is in Christ, who is a believer in Christ, has received the same high, glorious grace and favor that Mary received, a position of God's favor and grace that was undeserved but given to her as a gift as she believed and trusted in Christ. All believers are highly favored. It's a gift of God. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, then think of yourself as being highly favored. It ought to make you sit up a little straighter in your seat this morning to think about that you are highly favored by God through Jesus Christ. God is coming to us and saying, you can be a part of that band of people. You know, Mary is highly favored and she's going to need every ounce of God's grace to live through where God's taking her. Because it's not going to be easy being the bearer of the Messiah, the Son of God. What she so willingly accepts and trusts in faith is going to be uncomfortable and dangerous and life-changing. Think about it. The disgrace of pregnancy. She was called an adulteress. Joseph was going to divorce her because he believed she had been unfaithful to him. That is not an easy path to go on at age 12, 13, 14, 15, or 16, or any time in your life. Think about it. Having to flee to Egypt because of Herod going after her newborn son. So she and Joseph were going to have to flee and live as strangers in the land of Egypt because somebody's after you. The one with all the power, the king, with all the secret service men and people looking for you, the connections, not easy. The future days of Jesus' ministry was going to bring so many misunderstandings and suffering to her soul, not easy. But God's favor was with her. In verses 30 through 33, the message is, you will conceive a son and you are to name him Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, is a very common name in the Hebrew, part of Joshua. God saves, salvation. What an appropriate name, the Savior. He is the Son of God, the Most High. That's amazing news. God will give him David's throne, so he's from David's line. And he will reign forever in an unending kingdom. Amazing news. Imagine being a young lady, sitting there doing whatever she was doing that day. And an angel comes, Gabriel, and tells you, here's what's going to be happening the, next, uh, the rest of your life. It's a lot to digest and swallow. In verse 34, she asks a question. <laughs> How will this be? For I am a virgin. Now, I want you to know there's a whole different attitude than Zechariah. When Gabriel came to Zechariah nine months earlier and said, you know, You're going to have a son like you've been praying. And Elizabeth is going to get pregnant. And he said, we're old. This isn't going to happen. How can this be? He was doubting. Mary isn't doubting. She's just looking for an explanation. She wasn't doubting that she was going to conceive and bear a son. She was doubting, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I haven't known a man. I haven't been unfaithful to my beloved one, Joseph. So how am I going to get pregnant? I'm a virgin? And the answer? The Holy Spirit will come and overshadow you in power. That word overshadow is a picture or should draw us to the idea of God's powerful presence. Like when the cloud came down on the Mount of Transfiguration and enveloped Jesus and the disciples who were up there and and God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. It just, he's all around us. You're just going to be overshadowed with God's power. The overshadowing God is saying, this son you're going to bear, Mary, is the promise delivered, deliverer promise fulfilled. And I love Mary's response She says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Serving God is not foolish. Here in this story, we see God's favor overshadowing Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. An older couple experienced God's grace working through natural means so that Elizabeth could get pregnant in her old age, but she was being overshadowed. Mary, on the other hand, experiences a supernatural overshadowing that is a mystery and we cannot explain it. But I want you to know this little side note this is not like a pagan mythology story where an unholy union happens between a God and a woman producing a semi-divine offspring, some superhero like Hercules. That's not the story here. Here is mystery, that God the Spirit works beyond human sight. You understand, Jesus wasn't conceived in the womb. Jesus always existed. He just took on human flesh, just became a, a, a man in a human body so that he could come and rescue us. And that is mystery. How's this going to happen? For nothing is impossible with God. So, the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And this is a reality for all believers in Christ. Because if you're a follower of Christ today, then you are the temple of God. And God the Spirit lives in you, is overshadowing you. Believers in Christ, let that truth sink in. We are a part of Christ, we are His holy temple. One other quick note Mary responds I'm the Lord's servant. When you think of a servant, what do you picture in your mind? What comes to your mind? A few years ago, there was this really popular show, Downton Abbey, right? Do you think about those kind of servants? Like, you know, they they have income, they're treated pretty well, but no. This is doulos, this is a bond servant. Mary's saying, I choose to be your slave for life. I trust you and I will follow you. I trust in God. He's shown me great favor. I will gladly do what he asks for it is holy and it is good. So are you ready to say that today? We hesitate to surrender what God is often asking us to do as his followers. But we're never foolish if we trust and obey him. Jesus, the servant, Jesus, the Lord of glory, came and served us, Philippians chapter 2, and he promises that he came and served, and then he was raised to glory that at his name every knee's going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And he says, where I am, I will take you to be with me. That's the promise to those who just trust in him. That's our destiny if we're followers of Christ. One One other point, God's favor, the gift of community. Look at what Mary does after she gets this message. In verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, which is south, down close to Jerusalem. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the gift of community. The Holy Spirit draws these two women together. He draws our attention to them for many reasons because, number one, they're great women of faith. They tell us about how holy and great God's plans are and they've surrendered to them. They're praising him. They tell us about his great plan of salvation in Christ. They are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. It's a picture of what unhesitating belief does when following the Lord. Did you hear that? It's a picture of what unhesitating faith does when you're following the Lord. You find community, support. You believe God, you trust God, and you go to those who believe and trust God as well to have mutual encouragement. In this amazing and yet difficult situation, Mary finds counsel and comfort from an older saint. We believe she might have been relatives. They were relatives. Mary found the supporting words she needed, faith in her pregnancy, because she was being misunderstood by Joseph and her whole little town of Nazareth was probably wagging their tongues and talking about, did you hear about Mary? These women of faith knew God's word, and they knew God was working to keep his promise, and they were a part of it. And Mary sings a song of worship that declares God's great work. So what can we take away from Mary and Elizabeth? What will inspire you as you think about their lives this week to live more faithfully and trusting? Is there something you're picking up today? There's a lot to think about. I've only touched a few things. And will you tell somebody what God's impressed in your heart so far about Mary's faith or Elizabeth's faith and what they've done and what, or what God's done? Who will you tell? Luke highlights these Similarities and differences between John and Jesus' birth because he wants to raise up who Jesus is and show us that even though John the Baptist was great, Jesus is greater, and those who trust in him are not foolish, but they're wise. Those who follow him and dare to trust him even in difficult times when he asks him to, us to do difficult things, they are wise. Kind of neat, old and young, mixing it together right here. A young virgin, teenager, with an older saint, 40s or 50s, who knows how old Elizabeth was. That's a secret. (laughs) Encouraging one another in the faith. Zechariah doubts, Mary accepts God's word, and God's overshadowing them all and moving them on. Thirdly, mindful of his people, God is merciful. I want to point out just a couple things in Mary's song, her Magnificat, as it's called, in verse 46. And it says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Just want to point out, you see, Mary needed God's salvation. Her testimony was, he is my Savior. I rejoice in God, my Savior. She declares her need for forgiveness of sin. She comes to him in humble faith, and she describes the great things God is doing for her. And then look at verse 50, that theme of grace and mercy. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I ask this question, who deserves mercy? Do Adam and Eve, did they deserve mercy in the Garden of Eden? When they disobeyed God, did they deserve mercy? Yet God was merciful. He covered their shame. He banished them from the garden so they wouldn't eat from the tree of life to live forever trapped in sin. (laughs) The curse that he poured out was tempered with this promise of a deliverer. God was merciful. Does Israel, the nation of Israel, do they, do they deserve mercy? I don't know if you know the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and their trek through the wilderness, but just read Exodus. Read the book of Numbers sometime. Just take a quick glance through it. <laughs> they, there's some great lessons of faith there. You know, Moses and Miriam, Joshua and Caleb, to name a few, the the heroes of the faith, so to speak. But, But God's rock solid mercy is revealed as Israel is, get this, famously faithless. Famously faithless. God delivered them protected them. They walked through the Red Sea. He provided food and water, and all they did was complain and not believe. And when they were supposed to go into the land, they wouldn't go. And yet, what? God is merciful. So who among the nations that exist in our day, what nation deserves mercy? Well, read Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. What do the nations say? Let's throw off God's chains. Let's not have anything to do with his anointed one, Jesus Christ. We'll do our own thing. We'll make our own kingdoms. So whether it's nations, that would include ours, or individuals, Romans 3, no one's good, not even one. No one's holy, not even one. No one seeks after God, Romans 3 tells us that. Individual or collectively, who deserves mercy? And yet God is merciful. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were rebels, Christ died for us. Died for our sins. So despite who we are, despite... (laughs) the nations ignoring and despising Jesus' rule over them, God shows us mercy when we deserve wrath. have one more question for you. Well, a couple more questions. Have you ever thought God's judgments are over the top? Like God is like way too harsh when he judges people? Should I ask for... Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for being honest. Yeah. A worldwide flood? Really, were people that evil that God had to, like, kill everybody except Noah and his family and all those innocent animals? Except for the ones in the ark? Really? How about raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins of greed? for their sins of idolatry, for their sins of sexual immorality. So why hasn't it poured down on us yet? Mercy. I like that. (laughs) How about the ground opening up and swallowing Korah and his family and all his kids and all his animals because they just rebelled against Moses' rule and wanted to go back to Egypt? Is that over the top? You ever read the book of Revelation? The judgments that are going to happen before Jesus returns on all the world? Do you think that's over the top? Why does God cleanse the earth that way? How serious of an offense are our wicked ways to a holy God? And let me ask you this question. Do you you ever think God went too far making Jesus, God the Son, suffer terrible spiritual and physical punishment in your place? Do you think God went over the top by doing that? Does it ever bother, bother you that for your sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for you? The prophet Habakkuk was complaining to the Lord that the land of Judah was filled with unrighteousness. And Habakkuk felt like God was doing nothing about it. He's like, God, do something. You know what God said? I am about to do something. Stand back and watch. And when Habakkuk got the right perspective on how offensive sin was to God, a holy God, And how right and fair God's judgments are on our sinful ways. You know what he prayed? In Habakkuk 3, verse 2, he says, In wrath, in your just wrath, God, remember mercy. Be merciful. And thanks be to God, he remembers mercy when we deserve wrath. God must punish sin. He's a holy God. He's just and right. And he sent the Lord Jesus to be judged in our place. He's mindful of his people. The promised Messiah was being sent. God poured out his favor on his people. To all those who look to him, they they will receive mercy instead of punishment. God is merciful and rejoice in that this morning. And live differently not to take advantage of his mercy but to be an example of how his grace changes you. His overshadowing favor in Mary's life, in Elizabeth's life, in Zechariah's life. And I say this today, do not turn away from Jesus Christ. Instead, turn in belief. Receive mercy in Christ instead of wrath outside of him. Let's pray together. Lord God, Use your word that you've given us in Luke to make us, to increase our trust so that we lean hard on you. Lord, we need your favor. We need your grace to follow you fearlessly the way Mary did. Lord, you've done as you've promised. You dwell in us. You overshadow us when we're in Christ. We're your living temples. Lord, we are your servants. We ask you to use us to show off the power of your grace.